be with Carson as he presents um, all the things that you have blessed him with this week to us. And we pray all this in the majestic and the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. A reading from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and it circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new. Under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. This is God's good word for us. Okay, God's good word for us. Sorry, I've got a lot of stuff here. Get set. Yeah, some of you, yeah, the book of Ecclesiastes, some of you are really excited about this book, you're looking forward to it, and then some of you are like, okay, wait, is what Watson just read in the Bible? Like, we're pretty sure that was from the Bible, and also, will you be giving out Prozac in the back at the end of the the series? Yes to the first question, no to the second question, but Ecclesiastes is a strange book. Uh, It's difficult, and it's a complex book reflecting our difficult and complex lives as humans. When we decided at our uh, elder retreat last year that we were going to preach through the book of Ecclesiastes, part of me was like, yes, because I have my own history with this book that perhaps I'll share later along the way. But then the other part of me was like, oh, man, because this is a challenging book to teach. 
So before we actually get into the passage that you heard itself, let me offer a few reasons why we're going to study Ecclesiastes over the next several weeks. So why this book? First of all, it's in the Bible. It, it's there, you know. And uh, when Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3 that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching and correction and rebuke and for training in righteousness, he mostly had in mind the books of the Old Testament, including Ecclesiastes. To, so to skip it is to skip a whole muscle group in our spiritual training. And then secondly, I think Ecclesiastes creates a lot of common ground between Christians and people who are not Christians, between believers and non-believers, because we all inhabit the same planet with similar setbacks and frustrations, disappointments in life, and we all have to try to make sense of them somehow. We all live under the sun, as Ecclesiastes will say. In fact, I think many parts of Ecclesiastes will remind you of songs or poems, or movies, or books, or stories that you've run across, because this struggle to make sense of life is a universal human struggle. So, if you attend North Wake uh, with friends or family or out of curiosity uh, about Christianity, but you're not committed to Christ personally, then I hope that you'll find in Ecclesiastes a conversation partner for your journey. But don't always expect it to be polite conversation. Ecclesiastes will poke you, that will try to pop your balloon, rain on your parade, stomp on your sandcastles, and poop on your party. And even if it's not always polite, you can count on Ecclesiastes to be brutally honest with you. Uh, in his very helpful book, Making Sense of God, Pastor Tim Keller queries, do you ever ask this about life? Why? What's it all for? What's the point of it? You might say, well, you know, get a good job, um, have a good life, be productive. Why do that? He asks. Well, so, you know, so I can care for my family or maybe even help alleviate poverty in the world. Why do that? <laughs> and you see, as you move further up the chain, those questions get harder to answer them. If your ultimate meaning in life is even something as good as people and relationships, well, the truth is that all that will end because everyone dies, including you. Or maybe your ultimate why in life is to make a difference in the world, you know, uh, make the world a better place for future generations, leave it better than you found it. But all that is going to eventually pass away too. Uh, he goes on to quote philosopher Thomas Nagel, who I actually quoted last week on Easter. It's a good enough quote that I'm going to use it again because it fits with Ecclesiastes. Not from a Christian mindset necessarily, but listen to what he has to say. Even if you produce a great work of literature, which continues to be read thousands of years from now, Eventually, the solar system will cool, or the universe will wind down and collapse, and all trace of your effort will vanish. It wouldn't matter if you had never existed. After you've gone out of existence, it won't matter that you did exist. So Keller concludes, if this life is all there is, and there's no God or life beyond this material world, then it ultimately doesn't matter if you fought hunger in Africa your whole life, or if you were incredibly you know, cruel and greedy and starved the poor. It might make some people happier or sadder for a brief time while they're on the planet, but beyond that, your influence, good or bad, is likely negligible on the grand scale. Everything you've done, everyone that you've done things with or to will be gone forever. 
ultimately everything's radically insignificant. Happy Sunday, everybody. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad you're here? But, you know, if this is you and you're up for an honest dialogue about the purpose of life, Ecclesiastes will be your new friend. It will be annoying and an unsettling new friend, but it will be earnest and authentic. And if you are a Christian, you have even more reasons for studying this book. Uh, the third reason you might have for looking at Ecclesiastes is that this is a gut check book for Christians. Because even those of us who say that we live for God and we live for His kingdom and we love Christ, we're still often prone to just settle for living for the things of this world. Success, money, pleasure, and achievement, we're so prone to bank on those for our fulfillment. And Ecclesiastes wants to dash some cold water in your face, wake us up, and get us back on the right track. The book will say that its own words are like goads. It says the words of the wise at the end of the book are like goads. And like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. So goads are pointy sticks that shepherds would use to get their sheep moving in the right direction. And the preacher will use this book like that on, on you. A uh, fourth reason for looking at Ecclesiastes is that it rounds out our discipleship with honest, humble modesty. We're all about um, making disciples and growing followers of Jesus at this church. So how does Ecclesiastes help us with that? When you heard it read, it just sounds so different than the rest of the Bible. Philip Ryken says this in his book. He says, the writer of Ecclesiastes asked the tough intellectual and practical questions that people always have. And he's not satisfied with the easy answers that children usually get in Sunday school. Poor Sunday school, by the way. It's always, you know, the whipping post and quotes. Our classes are great here, by the way. Disclaimer, Sunday school's awesome. He says, in fact, part of his spiritual struggle is with the kind of answers he's always been given. If you're the kind of person who always says, yes, but, then Ecclesiastes is for you. Ecclesiastes is honest about the fact that Christians too live in between Eden and heaven. We all live under the sun. Ecclesiastes helps us understand discipleship in a broken world with broken people. Things happen that we don't always have the answers to. Things happen that we can't always explain, that we fumble to try to make sense of. We have questions about God and His ways that we just don't understand, even given all that we know from Scripture. For many of us who live in, you know, like seminary orbit and are well-read and, you know, we feel like we know, we know some stuff about God and about life and the world and about the Bible. We tend to walk around with a little bit of Christian swagger. Well, Ecclesiastes will take off his glove and slap you in the face and challenge you to a duel because you don't have all the answers. Christopher Wright, in his landmark book, uh, The Mission of God, he points out that Ecclesiastes keeps us humble in our evangelism particularly. It keeps us from proclaiming some sort of unthinking, uncaring, arrogant type of dogmatism that thinks we can always tie up all the problems in the world with a pretty Bible bow. It protects us from also preaching a prosperity gospel that says if you just serve and follow Jesus and get all your live ducks in a row, things will go swimmingly for you. No. Christians are not immune to the diseases, devastating accidents, layoffs, and losses of this life. We still live in between Eden and heaven. And this should give us a sense of modesty and humility mixed with our confidence and assurance of the hope that the gospel brings us. 
You see, Ecclesiastes can offer you a good kind of deconstruction. You might think of it as like a kind of vaccination against a more dangerous form of it. Deconstruction or deconverting, you know, leaving the faith, it's a, it's a common phenomenon in our increasingly post-Christian era. Well-known people who once identified as Christians, like comedians Rhett and Link, or former pastor and author Joshua Harris, or people that not many people know, like some of my best friends from high school, some former students of mine, friends and family of yours, have deconstructed and then ultimately renounced their faith in Christ. And while I'm sure this is not the case for all deconstructors, one of my good friends from back home, uh, he put it like this when I talked to him. He said, Christianity just wasn't working for me. He was disappointed with God and with how God, if he was real, allowed his life to turn out. But if Ecclesiastes is like a vaccine, it'll give you a strain of this kind of letdown and disappointment so that you can better temper your spiritual immune system's expectations of what exactly you think God is supposed to do for you in your life. Ecclesiastes wants to inoculate you against what Tim Mackey calls the myth of religious fulfillment, where we invite God into our life in order to enhance our life. You know, like yoga or the Whole30 diet or something. God's role in my life is pretty much to help me get better, to help my life get better in, in some way. And while I think there's probably some truth to that, I think knowing God does a world of good for somebody's soul now and forever, that doesn't necessarily mean that life will always go easier or more pleasantly or less painful for a Christian. And Ecclesiastes will help you face that head on. Which leads us to perhaps the final reason that we should read Ecclesiastes, because like Inigo Montoya, it warns you, prepare to die. <laughs> Ecclesiastes wants to take the one thing in our, all of our lives that is definitely in our future and help us come to terms with it, to prepare for it, and learn how to really live our lives today in light of it. David Gibson, in what is maybe my favorite Ecclesiastes book so far, says this. He says, Ecclesiastes teaches us to live life backward. It encourages us to take the one thing in the future that is certain, our death, and work backward from that point into all the details and decisions and heartaches of our lives, to think about them from the perspective of the end. The preacher wants us to let the reality of our death sink into our bones and lodge itself deep in our hearts, that's because he's writing a book about what it means to live. The single question that animates him is this. If we won't live forever, or even long enough to make a lasting difference in the world, how then should we live? So, with those reasons in mind, let's forge ahead and dive into the book. Ready? Oh, okay. <laughs> Sounds like you might not be, but it doesn't really matter. I'm going to go ahead regardless. So, here we go. Uh, verse 1, chapter 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. So Ecclesiastes opens with this interesting little preface or an introduction that you're about to hear from someone, which is interesting from the start. It seems like you have an author and then you also have this preacher. The author's going to let the preacher speak. He's going to let him present his words to us. This dynamic will show up again at the very end of the book when the author writes this. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, 
The preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. So at the very beginning and at the end of the book, it's like you have another voice that frames everything in between. It's, it's almost like if you were to have a visiting professor uh, come and lecture to your class and you're in the class. The main professor would get up and say, so-and-so is going to speak to us today about such and such a topic. And then at the end of class, after the guest professor speaks and leaves, he'll get up and say, so class, what did we learn? What did we learn today from our guest professor? Now, there's been quite a bit of scholarly debate over just who this preacher or guest professor is. And the short answer is basically, it's either the great King Solomon or it's someone later writing from a very Solomonish perspective. But the book honestly hardly spends any time on this, and it jumps right away into the message of the book, which is the really important part. So let's continue. The words of the preacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. All right, so much like the character Bruno in the kids' movie Encanto, we don't talk about Hebrew except when we have to, like today. Um, in preaching, I usually try to not overemphasize Hebrew and Greek word meanings because, uh, first of all, they're hard to pronounce. And then secondly, English Bible translations are really good. We have excellent scholars who agonize over every single word they choose for their translations so you can happily read your English Bible and not be worried about how accurate they might be. That said, sometimes there's words that are complicated. And virtually every commentary that I read on Ecclesiastes laments the use of words like vanity in the King James or the ESV or meaningless in IV, NLT, as translations of the Hebrew word hebel or hevel. It's like the soft B and V that we don't really have in English, but you have in some other languages. So H-E-V or B-E-L, hebel. But it's a hard word to appropriately translate because it's used metaphorically in the book. The literal translation of hevel would be vapor or breath or smoke, you could say. Interestingly, the Message Bible, which is known for being a paraphrase rather than a literal translation, renders this more literally than any other translation. It says, smoke, nothing but smoke. That's what the quester says. There's nothing to anything. It's all smoke. And of course, it's always worth cross-checking Larry's favorite Bible translation, the Hawaiian Pigeon Version. <laughs> to teach it tell, no makes sense. No makes sense. For sure, everything, no makes sense. No more nutting makes sense. Well, that's actually not a bad translation. And see, this is what's great about having multiple English translations is you can check across them to try to sort out what these key words mean. For us, vanity is usually associated with good looks or pride or self-focus. You know the song, you're so vain, you probably think the song is about you, don't you, don't you? That's not what Hevel is about. And meaningless doesn't quite get you there either. The author's not saying that life has no meaning. He's saying that life is, is short, it's confusing, it's frustrating, and so you wonder what it all adds up to in the end. You can't quite figure it out. But that's not the same thing as saying that there is no meaning in life at all. 
So I think the word smoke or vapor is a really great metaphor for what he's getting at. So I'm going to try to make some, some hevel for us. Now, I brought dry ice this morning, and wouldn't you know it, that stuff goes away fast. I even went to Walmart between the services to see if they had any. So if we don't have any, I have a backup hevel plan. Oh, yeah, it's totally gone. That is so hevel. Like, it was there, and it's just completely gone. Okay, backup plan. In the first service, we had North Wake's first ever uh, fog machine by putting the dry ice in there. But we'll go a different way. Happen to have this... Uh, Mandel, if you will, in my office. Leather and embers. Hope you don't mind if I light up right now. I won't leave it going for too long. Let's see. There we go. Yeah, that's nice. Beautiful flame. Let it just go for a second before. Oh, there it is. That is Hevel. It's here, and now it's gone. It was just there. Try to grab hold of it. And it escapes your grasp. So, I mean, it, you can't grab onto it. It defies shape and it's kind of mysterious, you know? So that's, that's Hevel. You can't hold onto it or grasp it or make it last. Other scriptures will help you understand how this word is used, like Psalm 39, verses 4 through 5, which says, O Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you've made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath, hevel, vapor. Or Psalm 144, man is like a breath, hevel. His days are a passing shadow. Or a famous verse from Proverbs 31, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. See, you read that in English and you think beauty is self-absorbed. It's not what it's saying. It's saying it's fleeting. It's hevel. Beauty is passing. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. So, hevel gives you this sense of, of fleeting, here and then gone. And it's in this kind of a way that life can seem pointless or meaningless because it's gone so soon. Nothing lasts. So what was the point? But Hevel also gives the sense of frustrating, confusing, mysterious. You know, smoke is its ethereal. You can't get your hands around it. It defies shape and order. And it's just mysterious. And life is kind of like this too. It's ungraspable and thus can seem frustrating or even absurd at points. He'll use the word in this way in like uh, chapter 8 of Ecclesiastes. He'll say, There's a vanity that takes place on the earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is hevel. It's What? He's looking at wicked people getting what righteous people really deserve. And he's looking at righteous people getting what the wicked deserve. And he looks at all this and he's so frustrated. And he's like, man, what the hevel is going on here? You know? <laughs> Maybe that's a good way to remember the phrase. Sorry, I didn't give you a PG warning. Maybe not. But you've had this experience too, haven't you? Where you see someone who loves and seems to serve God and want to live for him. And their outcome in life seems terrible. And then you watch someone else who could care less about God and just live for themselves, and they seem to have a great life. Man, that is hevel. 
It's utterly confusing. So all in all, when the preacher, the professor, he looks at life, he observes that it's fleeting, it's frustrating, and thus it feels futile. And that's only verse (laughs) 2. So we better pick up the pace just a little bit. Verse 3. He says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens, literally pants or gasps. You know, it's the sun's working so hard to get back to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes back around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits, the wind returns All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Life seems like the same old thing. We come and we go, but the earth just keeps on doing its thing. Our time on the stage is so brief. But the theater remains, like you might think of the Metropolitan Opera House in New York. It outlives all the shows, all the acts and the plays, and even the actors that take place on its stage week after week. So much water is poured into the oceans every year, but it doesn't seem like they fill up. Is life going anywhere? Kind of feels to me like he's just describing the cycle of laundry in my house, you know? It's like, you do all the laundry, and yet before you know it, The basket is overflowing yet again. This too is hevel and chasing the wind under the sun. You know, what do we ultimately gain from all our hard labor? It's just the same old, same old. So I said there were lots of songs that Ecclesiastes might remind you of. So maybe we should play Name That Tune along the way through the series. Let's try this one. See if anybody knows it. And you run and you run to catch up with the sun, but it's sinking. Racing around to come up behind you again. The sun is the same in a relative way, but you're older, shorter of breath, one day closer to death. Anybody? All right, great job. We have a few hippies here, okay, and we know who you are now. You've self-identified, thank you. Yeah, Pink Floyd, good. And so we'd love to break the cycle of the same old thing, the same old song, the same old life, but we're stuck. Verse 8, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. All things are so full of weariness, you can't even express it. Just as the sea never fills up with water, so the human eye and the human ear can never seem to be filled up. The things we experience in this world are just never quite enough to satisfy us. There's always one more TV show to binge never really satiates you. Never quite a new po- enough new post to scroll through. Never enough weekends. Never enough promotions, enough money, enough accolades, enough experiences. Just never fills the human heart up. Let's play name that tune again. All the shine of a thousand spotlights, all the stars we steal from the night sky will never be enough. Never be enough. Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it'll never be enough. Never be enough. Anybody? The Greatest Showman. Now we see who likes musicals. Good job. That's cool. But it's not just the earth and the human heart that are on this hamster wheel. It seems to be all of history itself. Look at verse 9. It says, what has been 
is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said? See, this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to come among those who come after. Is anything really new? Now, this is an interesting question to ask in our day and age. You know, we've made some pretty significant technological and medical advances, right? Maybe there's something new. The iPhone, that's pretty cool. Virtual reality, that's got to be new. Well, maybe, maybe not. Uh, William Powers, in a brilliantly titled book, Hamlet's Blackberry. Um, Blackberries are already passe, aren't they? You're like, what is a blackberry again? Yeah, see how it goes? But he makes the case that humans have always been trying to invent new forms of communication or technology throughout the ages. It's a perennial struggle that goes on and on. So while the tech may be new, the search for more convenience or faster communication is not. We're doing the same thing that everyone before us did. David Gibson summarizes. He says, a new government is still a government. A revolution heralds a new era, and we've seen it all before. A new baby is still a baby, and the world has always been full of them. Indeed, space travel is a good example of precisely the preacher's point. He doesn't mean no new things are ever invented in the world, for clearly that's not true. He means there is nothing new that can ever, we can ever discover to break the cycle and so satisfy us. When we conquer our solar system, humanity will then try to conquer the galaxy beyond it. And I think the preacher's point is so many of those achievements will ultimately be lost to the sands of time anyway. And this is where, yeah, it gets a little depressing. Because in a hundred years or so, no one will know who I am. Likely no one will know who you are either. Try this exercise sometime. Try to write out on a piece of paper the full names of all eight of your great-grandparents. It's just a couple generations up. Now, if you're the family historian and you use Ancestry.com every day, that's cheating. I'm not including you. But if you could even do your great-grandparents from memory, I could get several of them, their full names. How about your great-great-grandparents? Do you know any of their names? I'm pretty sure for me there was one that they had the last name Cobb, you know, and that's about as far as I get. Within the span of a few generations, most of our lives and all that we have worked for are lost to history. Man, this is Heffel, you say. Can we like study Philippians or something else, you know? But the teacher will not let you off the hook because denial is not going to help you. It's good for us for several weeks to sit and feel the weight of what he's saying here. Because then and only then will you be ready to hear the wisdom he has to offer on how to live today in light of your last day. He has just a bit more for us today. 12 through 13. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek out and to search out wisdom by all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is smoke and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. 
So here the professor, the preacher, he's pulling out his credential card for you. He's saying that he had the means and the wisdom. He was the king and he had the work ethic. He applied his heart to sort out all that's done here on the earth. So you're not going to find a better candidate to do some life research for you. You'll hear more about this next week. But what does he find? He says, I surveyed it all, and it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And you're like, wait, what? What about the rest of the Bible? You know, like we just studied Genesis 1 and 2 earlier this year. I thought God tells people to enjoy the land, to work it and keep it and be fruitful and multiply. What about all that? I thought God was all about joy and the good life and stuff, you know? Yeah, that's true. But there's another side to it. There's Genesis 3, which really complicates things here. And Ecclesiastes wants to teach you about living in a world that's still under the curse, between Eden and heaven, after Eden, in exile still. Ecclesiastes wants to help you face the music, even though it's still in the minor key for now. And it's right to do so. Because there are things in this world that, even as Christians, even on this side of the cross and the resurrection, that are not completely straightened out. Things that are missing that are not yet made up for. Diseases that may not yet be healed. Loved ones that we cannot yet reunite with. Inconsolable homesickness that will not yet go away. Not yet. There are some wounds that only heaven will heal. And this is why Tolkien had Frodo leave the Shire and leave Middle Earth altogether at the end of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. His friend Sam doesn't understand. You know, we won. We won the battles. Why are you leaving? But Frodo replies, but I've been too deeply hurt, Sam. I tried to save the Shire and it has been saved, but not for me. I am wounded, wounded. It will never really heal. And yes, we have some information that the preacher did not have. We have in Jesus Christ the answer to how the crooked can be made straight, how what is lacking will one day be filled, and how what is wounded will one day be healed. I love that this is what John the Baptist said of Jesus as he began his ministry in Luke chapter 4. John the Baptist quotes from Isaiah, the prophet. He says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. In Jesus, God is straightening out what is crooked and bent in this world. And one day, all the bones will be fully set right again. One day. Perhaps Paul is thinking of Ecclesiastes 1 when he writes this in Romans 8. He says, yeah, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us one day. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. And this is the Greek word that's kind of the counterpart of the hevel word. Subjected to hevel, futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together, 
round and round, everything goes in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we also groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You see, the Christian life is this mixture and tension of waiting for then while still living right now. We're waiting for the day when all is put right, and yet we're living in a world where it ain't right yet. So we still need the words of the preacher of Ecclesiastes to help us live in this world while we wait for the redemption of creation, the redemption of our bodies. And as we wait, we do know more than the preacher knew. We can look to the life of our good shepherd, Jesus Christ, who has a wisdom greater than Solomon's. And even though he will use this book like a goad, a sharp stick to wake you up and get us moving, he will also bind us up and carry us in his arms through the hevel of this life. That portion of Isaiah that was quoted by John the Baptist goes on to say that he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather his lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. You see, Jesus is the good and tender shepherd who even stepped into our life of hevel. He too lived under the sun. He lived like us. He lived among us. And he experienced the most meaningless hevel death of all time where the truly righteous got what the wicked deserve so that we who are wicked could receive what the righteous deserve. A meaningful, solid, everlasting life with him. This is more than smoke. Let's pray. So God, we trust that this is your good word to us. It is hard for us to hear, Lord, because we, we don't like to admit our limits. We don't like to admit our mortality. And yet we need to hear what's real and what's true. Lord, we thank you for, for the hope of resurrection that we talked about last week, that there is an end where everything will be put right and life with you forevermore. And yet we still have this life to live that is short, that is fleeting, confusing, mysterious. So help us to hear the words of this book, to teach us how to live well while we wait. Have mercy on us, we pray in Jesus. Amen. We're going to do something just a bit. Uh, we're not going to close by singing all together, but we're going to close by listening. My time of reflection, both in song and to everything that you've heard today on how God might be teaching you to live well in this life as we wait for the one to come.